Yeah, we're all marketers, right? And everyone wants to be that one solution, that one silver bullet. But that is the most important thing that we have to remember. There is no one silver bullet. It is a complex problem with a multifaceted set of solutions. And that's quite empowering in a way too, because you don't have to be an environmental scientist or a nutritional scientist to save the world. You can be a mechanic, you know, you can be a school teacher and you can still implement your solution in your career with your passion. We can all be part of this. And that's why I think we all need to come together in our own way. Otherwise we won't solve it because Regen Ag's not gonna solve it alone. Plant-based diet's not gonna solve it alone. Neither is seaweed, neither is renewable energy. All of them acting together definitely will create the world that we wanna see. That's the environmental cowboy or Corey Hancock. And this is episode 127 of The Proof Podcast. Welcome back. It's great to be here with you again. If you're new, welcome. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Simon Hill, physiotherapist, nutritionist, and author. Today, I bring you a really cool conversation, one that I have wanted to have for a long while with someone who sees the world through a slightly different lens to myself and some of our previous guests. We'll come to the details of this episode in a minute, but first, a quick message. Over the past few weeks, it's been incredible to see how many of you have downloaded the complimentary two-week meal plan on my website, plantproof.com. It's loaded with breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack ideas, all delicious with full nutritional information and professionally shot. Lots and lots of you have been sending me messages about certain dishes that are your favorites so far, the cauliflower curry, the white bean stew, And the pumpkin spiced overnight oats seem to be the crowd favorites so far. Remember, the plan is really just there as ideas for recipes to help you eat more plants. Whether it's one plant-based meal a week or full plant, it doesn't matter. Go at your own pace and follow your own taste buds. Next up, wow, the proof is in the plants was the number one selling nonfiction book in Australia in week one since launching. And number eight, overall in fiction and non-fiction categories. With that, it's safe to say that the book is well and truly reaching the mainstream. So thank you for all who have bought a copy and have been sharing it on the socials with your friends and family. I hope that you're finding it enjoyable and a helpful read. With each book helping to protect two square meters of the Daintree rainforest, thanks to Halfcut, the not-for-profit organization that I have teamed up with, we are well on our way to buying back a large chunk of land, which will then be returned to indigenous owners and protected for good. All of which I will be providing regular updates on at plantproof.com. Also had news that the book will be on shelf in the USA, UK, and Canada, along with some other countries, hopefully in the coming months. Now, today's episode, Corey Hancock, AKA the environmental cowboy, an environmental scientist and well-known media personality here in Australia. Corey grew up on a cattle farm and is a strong voice pushing for a move to regenerative agriculture practices across the country. Given regenerative agriculture and holistic grazing 
in particular is something that I have spoken about previously on this show with climate and environmental scientist Dr. Jonathan Foley from Project Drawdown, environmental researcher Nicholas Carter from Canada, and geoscientist Dr. Hannah Ritchie from the UK. I felt it was important to get someone on the show who has a slightly different background, not only the science, but also experience on the farm. I really enjoyed this conversation. Corey is super authentic and down to earth, as I'm sure you'll find. And I'd love to have him return to the show where we can dive even deeper in future episodes. I think both of us walked away with plenty more we'd like to chat about. Enjoy the conversation and I'll catch you on the other side. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains 8 key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2 to 3 pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Corey Hancock, welcome. 
Mate, it's uh, great to be here. I think we're going to have an epic conversation. I've been following your work for a while now. so We are indeed. And I wasn't sure whether to call you Corey Hancock or the environmental cowboy or the, <laughs> the, the climate change cowboy. There's a, there's a few names for you out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, a lot of people don't actually know my real name. They know the environmental cowboy. So... Um, yeah, it's a, it's been a long journey, um, quite an exciting one though, as well. The, the name as well, I guess, is not to be confused with the, the naked cowboy from New York. Have you come across his work? No, I haven't. I have to look him up now. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a fellow, some of the international listeners will be familiar with him. He's a, he's a character, a bit of an icon in, in New York. So yeah, you might have to look him up. Now, as you say, I think we're in for a really good conversation. I too have wanted this to to take place for a while now, and it's just really excited by seeing and hearing your perspective because I've had a bunch of people come on this show and talk about all things planetary health and environmental science, and this is an area that you're enormously passionate about. You're very educated in. And you come at this with a slightly different worldview and and look at things through a slightly different lens, which I think is really important in terms of really just understanding this this issue and, and climate change from different perspectives. And understanding being the key word there. So what I'm really excited by is learning from you and and understanding why planetary health is important to you and and how you see the solutions to climate change and and the solutions that you're very much sort of pioneering and working on. Yeah, so I guess I'll start at the beginning where I grew up. I grew up on a cattle station, 30,000 acre cattle station in central Queensland, Carnarvon Gorge, if you know where that is. Uh, Very beautiful, rich sandstone country and sandstone gorges and down our creek we have Aboriginal rock art all through it. Like it's, it's quite spectacular country. So dad ran cattle as well as ecotourism. He also ran a not-for-profit business that was for disadvantaged youth, a rehabilitation program. He sort of instilled sustainability principles into me, like take from the land what it gives back to us. And I was homeschooled and I spent a lot of time in the creek watching birds as a kid. Um, I had a scientific journal at eight years old and... I never built a cubby house so that they couldn't see me. I always stood right on the water's edge and sat there quietly because I was really interested in the way that they interacted with me and I'd write down their observations. And I really remember one time we went through a five or six year drought and a family on the neighbouring cattle station, uh, they had a daughter um, that was about our age and one day at the height of the drought, he went out at four o'clock in the morning and shot himself. Gosh. Yeah, and it was... How old was he? Uh, I'm not quite sure. He's 40, okay. mid-40s. But he was sort of looking after the family, the one that was making a living to provide for the family. Yeah, and I guess he felt like a, a failure at that time because of the drought. It was because of the hardship. Um, so I, I saw the impacts that going through those hard times had on the community. Is that common, that the, the mental health effect of, of drought and a suicide within that industry? Especially in men, especially in men. They don't talk about it. And that culture out West is very much like you keep it in and you, you're, you're hard, you're tough. Yeah, it's a lad's sort of culture. 
It is, it is. And uh, it's getting better now. Young people are sort of speaking up about it. But I guess from a young age, and, and the birds stopped coming around the creek and everything, everything dried up. So I, I saw the direct impact that that drought had on both people and nature. So I guess naturally I sort of wanted to learn more about it. And, and also the other the principle that I sort of was quite interested in learning about at a young age is that dad was mates with Graham Walsh, who was Australia's greatest rock art expert at the time. And the Aboriginal rock art around our place, there was a theory that he came up with. The, the left hand was a symbol for giving power back to the earth and the right hand was for receiving power. This was often associated around burials, so they would give the body back to the earth and in return they would take from the earth. It's like food and, and that kind of thing. Um, so it was a really powerful circle of life type concept. And I've done a lot of study in Indigenous uh, philosophies and concepts, principles since. In most Indigenous cultures around the world, they have a similar principle, like the Lion King circle of life. Um, so I was interested in learning more about that and how to instill those principles into our culture. Is that at its core around just a sort of innate understanding that we are sustained by a flourishing natural world and therefore if we're taking from it, we, we need to be making sure we're putting back in just as much, if not more? Yeah. It's about contribution, right? Um, and the more that we contribute, the more that we can get out of it. Don't you think it's quite profound that the Indigenous people have that mindset without having climate change or any of this stuff in the news or the science on their radar, they, they found that? Yeah, it is. And it's interesting you say that because they lived so closely to the land itself. They were so deeply connected to it. For example, a tree. If you think of a single tree... The way that we look at a tree is it has monetary value, right? It's worth more knocked down than what it is alive. They can speak to that tree. They have a story for every land, every mountain, and they can access knowledge, their ancestors, through that tree, through that rock, through that mountain. And that story that they attach to it has knowledge about the past. They can access that during the present, and then that gives them access to knowledge to sustain the future. So that's where that past, present and future thing comes from is because uh, they are interconnected through the land itself. Uh, I think there could be people listening thinking that sounds a little woo-woo, right? The fact that they're connected through the trees to their ancestors. Yeah. But is that just a reflection of how disconnected from nature we've become that now that is a woo-woo style concept? Because if I think about my childhood, and, and certainly I didn't live on a farm in rural Australia, but I lived in, in more regional sort of areas. And even when I was in, living in the United States for a while, it was beachside and spent a lot of the time in nature. When I came back to Australia, all my childhood memories are out and about with my friends in nature, in rivers, in creeks, riding motorbikes in nature. And I think today, I think, well, why do I actually care about the planet? And I think it's because I've... I learned to really appreciate it and value it as a, as a young kid. Yeah, 100%. We, we are so disconnected to it. Like we, we live in cities now, you know, concrete areas. We are physically disconnected to it and we don't spend enough time in it. So we don't care enough about it because we don't feel it. We don't see it. We don't believe it. But that sort of concept of, of oneness, we all one, is actually a quantum physics concept. Science can explain that at a deeper level. 
if anyone looks into quantum physics, it's like we, we, if you break us down to our smallest molecule, you know, um, you, me, the table, the ocean, the trees, it's all pure intelligence, pure energy. And our perspective is just our perspective. We're creating our reality with our thoughts. And so those type of concepts are not just spiritual, hippie type concepts. They're actually based in real science, which is what interests me the most about it. It is like it, it goes to a deeper level and it's a level that the Western culture doesn't quite understand. And, and Charles Massey in his book uh, called The Reed Warbler, he talks about this. He talks about the Western culture mindset that came in in the 1700s and we massacred thousands and thousands. Domination. Yeah, it was complete domination. Whereas he talks about the regenerative mindset and it's like we need to align ourselves more with nature and that is exactly what they were doing. The traditional Aboriginal population at that time was aligning themselves with nature. Everything that they did, everything that they farmed, they grew, they hunted, it was completely aligned uh, with nature and they understood those principles. So do you think the that domination mindset, I'm thinking 1700s, I'm thinking British coming over to, to Australia, do you think that was around scaling and building the economy and sort of moving from a more uh, tribal, smaller community framework to a faster growing, completely different economic model? Yeah, 100%. The economic model was built on the degeneration of nature. Everything that, that we valued was valued on extracting the resources out of the ground and growing bigger and bigger. Whereas the Indigenous model was quite the opposite. It's like whatever we took out, we had to put back in. I want to come back to that because I know that you've spoken about the sort of economic model and, and, and our mindset on that. And I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are in terms of changing that from a government legislation point of view. So we'll put a pin in that. But let's go back to your, your growing up, you're immersed in, in nature and you're connected with nature. You're on the cattle farm. At what stage was it that you then decided to pursue environmental science and, and go down that route? I think it was just a natural progression from there. It was naturally built into me at that young age from spending so much time in nature. Um, so I think you just, you go back to your core eventually. So I went on to study environmental science and environmental planning. I did a duo degree at the Sunny Coast Uni. And then um, I went into environmental professional career. What's environmental planning? Environmental planning is basically town planning sort of stuff. It's more development plans. I haven't actually used that part of my degree that much just yet. Um, more the environmental. So planning. helping urbanisation, but but with a environmental sort of mindset. Yeah, um, drainage, uh, uh, waterway planning, that kind of thing. Okay, and then you find yourself today being this this incredible voice for climate change, and you have a particular interest in regenerative agriculture and carbon storage, and the environmental cowboy is is making making planetary health sexy and fun, and 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 turning what is a very serious topic into something that that I think is is really accessible and a bit more enjoyable. So, I, I think that's. What one of the things that sort of pulled me towards your content was that there's an element of fun to the environmental cowboy. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so I'm a 10 year professional now. And so I always had this, whilst I was learning in the professional industry, I learned very hard and fast. Uh, I was in the, the resources industry, in construction and mining and across a number of different industries to begin with. And I realized that we just weren't listening to what was really important. 
And how could I communicate these messages better to construction managers, to mining managers, etc.? And so I always had this idea of I wanted to start film, I wanted to be a voice, but I didn't ever think that I was good enough to start with. And, and so... Why do you think you had that doubt? Failure and rejection. I guess we all sort of have those sort of doubts about ourselves. You still have that today. Yeah, right now. Yeah. Well, I know like, I do. I know I know. going <laughs> go all the time. It's, there's always, there's, you know, the, the more you appear successful on the outside to other people, I find anyway, the, the, the doubt, if anything, can, can actually become elevated to an extent. Yeah, it, it's part of human nature, right? We just have to sort of work through that. But the way that the human mind works, the amygdala in the back of our brain, is that we either react to stuff, that's the fight or flight, like we're used to running away from saber-toothed tigers, right? So um, we react straight away or there's a slow cultural shift. For me, it was a reaction. I was totally in love with this girl and uh, she was everything to me at the time. And and then she broke up with me and I had to find something else that uh, made me happier than her. So I, I just went for it. I started with the camera in the bush and started filming myself and talking about these uh, environmental aspects, I guess. And I was terrible to start with. The communication was terrible. You look back on those now and you cringe. I delete them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, if that's not happening though, you're not you're not moving in the right direction. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, you, that, that, that should be the way if you look back on old content, I think. Uh, that's right. I just had no fear at the time. I, just, I was just reacting and, and just had no fear. But like anything... It was a purpose that was bigger than myself. I wasn't doing it to be a celebrity or to be famous or anything. I was doing it with a higher purpose. Felt right. Yeah, and that was back to my core belief of that left hand contributing to society. So that kept me going. I just, I guess I just got better at communicating. I got funnier. Actually, the the, the thing was is that that girlfriend at the time, um, she told me I wasn't funny. <laughs> and, and she she bought me a book for my birthday and the title of that book was How to Execute Your Jokes So That People Actually Laugh. <laughs> and then she broke up with me two weeks later. So. And did you use the book? I didn't at the time. I was a little bit hurt. But I did I did actually go and get uh, comedy lessons. Uh, so I did try and get Well, you up. are very funny, so so something's worked there. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, maybe that was all blessing in disguise. Well, I think people laugh at me, not with me most of the time, so that's probably part of the problem. But anyway, no, I'm just accepting it and I'm um, going with it, but I just worked out a way to communicate those messages better. So I just started um, and I thought of the name The Environmental Cowboy and it kind of worked. I think people like that kind of character. I mean, Steve Owen, the Crocodile Hunter, um, Matt Wright, the Outback Wrangler, it kind of works, you know, that type of name. So I just kept on going with it. And um, the, the one fear that I really had was, what would the professional industry take me seriously still? So I went through a few ups and downs with that, um, especially in the Was carbon. there some pushback? There was some pushback, yeah. And a lot of people were very fearful of it. They're definitely more accepting now to the point where, you know, they've they've seen that that's the road we need to head. We need to communicate these messages better. So to start with, it, it was a bit of a rocky road and I went through a massive journey of self-discovery, I guess, where I had to work out all my demons inside myself, you know, all the egos and, and the the fears of, of, of failure and everything. I, I had to work that out. I had to really get uncomfortable to be comfortable. It really wasn't about me. It was about trying to get the message through. So if someone approached me 
and said that I didn't like my stuff or that they didn't like that message that I gave or something, I, I wouldn't challenge it. I would look as to why. I would try and see that other person's perspective because if it's not going through to them, then why am I doing it? You know, so I, it was a massive journey and it, it's one that's been so rewarding. Like I've met so many beautiful like-minded people and, and I do incredible things with my life now. And it's just, it just made my life so rich. Like I'm not rich as in wealthy, I'm rich as in happy. And I'm here right now with you, you know, and I really respect your podcast and what you say and what you do. Um, and there's a number of different people like that that I've met along the way. So it's just helped me become a better person in every way. And I just love it. So anyone out there that's thinking of doing something that's being a voice in their own way, in their own area, I'd really encourage that. Does it feel like work for you? Not at all. Not at all. That's always a good sign. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. Behind the scenes, I do a lot of work um, that people don't see. Like I, I do work at it. I work at being better so that I can um, present the information better, that I can learn more. But um, it's, it's all fun. Like I, I just enjoy it every moment. Do you speak to, to that ex-girlfriend ever now? Actually, I talked to her just last month after five, six years. Um, and I just, I guess I thanked her for um, being part of that journey, I guess. A it's catalyst. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's right. It was a turning point for me. It really was. Yeah. So she, so the persona of the environmental cowboy, she really had never met. No, no. She, I was very serious at the time, very professional and straight. Kind Did that of allow you to sort of tap back into, to your childhood days where potentially there's a bit more fun for all of us and then you can lose that almost? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was, um, <laughs> I had to learn to be a kid again, you know, and, and that was a fun journey too. Like people like fun people, you know, that they like having fun with it. And these climate messages, the environmental messages are always delivered in such a seriousness. Dry. Um, and I just, yeah. And if we want the whole world to act on this, then we have to get the whole world involved somehow. We have to make it fun because it is fun. So I'm, I'm trying to help show people that it, it can be exciting. This, this life that I lead, the solutions, the contribution, uh, trying to make a difference, that can be fun. It doesn't have to be work, work, work. It, it can be enlightening. It can be a journey of self-discovery. So climate change, let's define it. What is climate change? What's happening? And why have you chosen to dedicate your life to, to impacting it? Okay, well, I'll, I'll go a little deep here, but I want to come back up. First, I'll, to go down, I want to get a bit real with yeah, what's, it. what's actually happening. So to start with, what really, I mean, I studied climate change at uni and stuff, um, but it wasn't too much there. It was just sort of touched on it. What really opened my eyes to it was when I went on a three-day training course with Al Gore in America. Gosh, that would have been a good experience. Climate reality, yeah, it's called. It was a great experience. You become a climate reality leader out of that, and he takes you through with different scientists and and nutritional experts and economists and the rest of it, uh, he takes you through the actual climate science and what's happening out there around the world, all the impacts and how it's linked back to the science. Um, that's what really opened my eyes to it to start with. Then I went a little bit deeper. I did a course with CSIRO in Melbourne on the climate science projections. And that's when I started learning how conservative those models are. For example, the models only incorporate how much carbon dioxide that we're emitting 
not all the positive feedback loops that go on around the world. And for example, a positive feedback loop is the hotter it gets, the more the ice melts. There's methane trapped in that ice, so it releases. And methane's a gas that's 30 times as strong as carbon dioxide. So it has huge... So there's a knock-on effect beyond our emission. There's a knock-on effect, and they're not incorporating that into their models. So it's very conservative, and it's happening a lot faster than what we think it is. So the models just aren't correct in that sense. And, and I just sort of started realizing how quickly this is happening and how how much we have to do to really counteract those impacts. For example, in Queensland, down that Queensland Channel country, down that belt in central Western Queensland, the predictions are that in the next 10 to 20 years, it's going to rise in evaporation rates by another 10 to 15%, just in evaporation rates. And then the winter rainfall is going to decline by 15%. So it's actually getting drier and hotter. Drier and hotter, which is is predisposing us to these droughts that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. 
head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the living proof longevity challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Can you quickly just describe, I mean, drought's a very common word thrown around, but from a, a land point of view and a farming point of view, what does it mean? What does it look like? It's, it's a very low rainfall every year, uh, lower than average for a, a number of years. So it gets deeper and more intense. The evaporation takes more water and moisture out of that soil so that it's completely dry. You can't basically grow anything on it at all. So you're left with this very just unproductive farm. Yes. And it's made worse by conventional agriculture is that they just, conventional agriculture can be described as uh, flogging the ground right down to that tiny bit of grass that you see or right down to the to the root kind of thing. Um, so it leaves bare ground. So you've got hot sun coming down on bare ground with no rain. It just scorches the earth. We'll circle back to conventional versus regenerative in, in a little bit, but continue on with with sort of describing climate change and, and all of this, the information that you sort of unearthed. Yeah, okay. So, well, basically the IPCC reports, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change reports, um, which is a peer-reviewed of over 100 scientists, and they put all that information together to work out those predictions, what's happening globally. They're saying that over the next 10 years, that if we don't change dramatically, if we don't reduce our emissions and start drawing them down, then we have a runaway effect to climate change, basically. We're at an ecological tipping point now, which means that we're at a point where we can curve the emissions, but if we don't, it'll start a waterfall effect. All those positive feedback loops start working on each other and it starts rapidly increasing the temperature very, very quickly. And it's out of our control to an extent. To an extent. And the best way that I can sort of describe this is that when I was water monitoring up north, the groundwater tables, and I don't know if you've heard of PFAS before, if you watch Dark Waters on iTunes or Netflix, I think it's on with Mark Ruffalo, this is a true story over there, how PFAS and PFAS is in, it's like a water resistant chemical and it's in um, frying pans, it's in fire extinguishers and it contaminates the water table. So when it's on the ground, it seeps into the water table. It's very hard to extract and it's a known carcinogenic and stuff. And they, they had massive cases in America. We're having cases in Australia right now with, with that particular chemical. So I was monitoring for that in this groundwater table. And it was well under the guidelines, the human drinking water guidelines for a long time. All of a sudden it started exceeding, like all of a sudden within a month. Was that reported? Yeah. That was reported, that yeah. was made public knowledge? No. Wow. So you were able to identify it though? I was able to identify it, but it was kept within the, the company that I was working for. It didn't go public. We just had to mitigate it. So we had to truck in water, et cetera. And dilute it. Yeah, well, diluting is is not the solution, you know, um, but that's what they, that's the mindset that they had was like dilution. And, and But they were asking the question is, is why... Why is this succeeding now? Like, why hasn't it happened before? And the only answer that I can really give is that the environment can take and take and take and mitigate that sort of risk of, of us putting pollution into the ground. But then all of a sudden, it's like, bang, it just can't take anymore. That's the tipping point. We are putting so much pollution into the waterways, into the atmosphere, 
And then all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's like this runaway effect. We cannot control what happens from there. That's why I'm so interested in Project Drawdown is because even if we... So basically, the carbon dioxide level, we're, we're emitting 110 million tonnes into the atmosphere every single day. And that's creating a thick blanket around the atmosphere, which is trapping that heat. And so if you put an extra blanket over yourself at night, you're going to get hotter. And that's what's happening right now. So we're getting hotter because we're putting more blankets on top of ourselves. And that's why I'm so interested in, in Project Drawdown, because even if we stop emitting today, we go renewable, we go completely carbon neutral. There's a massive legacy load in the atmosphere that has like a, a lag effect. So we will keep on increasing in temperature for a number of decades. So we need to mine that carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it in our soils, our oceans, and our forests. We can do that through carbon farming. It's an entire industry in itself, which uh, I'll go into if you'd like. So that's what you're working on now? That's what I work in. I work in carbon farming. So the best way to describe that is carbon mining, really. We mine carbon out of the atmosphere and we store it safely in the forests, oceans, and soils, which they need carbon dioxide to regenerate. And that regeneration is it, it, there's different scientific methodologies that we can use for that regeneration. So if I go right back to the beginning on the Paris Climate Agreement and when that came into play in 2015, 22 countries came together to uh, work out how we can both reduce emissions and, and draw them back down. So Australia's commitment to that was that they came up with a, something called a Carbon Farming Initiative, basically a Carbon Farming Act, with these different methodologies in amongst them. Then they allocated a $2.5 billion emissions reduction fund. And that's what stimulated all the work. It was basically a stimulant for industry to go out and, um, and implement these different uh, methodologies. One of those methodologies is regenerative agriculture. The other one's like, it hasn't come into play yet, but it will be seaweed farming. There's lots of different ways, soil carbon, there's lots of different ways that we can store this carbon in the ground um, more safely. It just speeds up that initial process. I want to I spin into sort of agriculture and where that fits into this, this overall piece and why that's important for us to consider. But how, since 2015, how's Australia going in terms of its commitment to the Paris Agreement and, and what we're doing to try and lower the sort of per capita emissions? Yeah, interesting question. I think it's a bit slow, basically, behind the eight ball, like America was, but Biden sort of picked that up a lot now. So the interesting thing is, with Trump leaving and Biden getting in, is that it created a lot of hype around uh, the climate carbon stuff. Um, so he signed the he signed back on the Paris Agreement within days, right? He did, he did, and then he came out saying that you know we're going to take big swings at this, big initiatives, um, etc. So that created a lot of hype. And do you think that was public favor, or that was Biden genuinely believing that the for the American economy they need to they need to act fast here. You never really know people's motives, do you? But um, I think that he's probably pretty genuine. I think that he's he's been influenced by Obama a fair bit, and that was Obama's legacy. It was the the climate Paris Agreement. Um, so I, I think he's he's pretty pro um, climate, which is really like it's just developed so much hype around it, which is absolutely fantastic. Like basically, our carbon farming initiative in Australia, it is 
or our ACUs, they're called carbon credits that you sell and trade or whatever, um, they can only be sold and traded in Australia. But the Paris Climate Agreement has now got a clause saying that we can trade internationally. People are just trying to work out how to do that. So when Biden came in and, you know, created a bit of hype around the climate carbon stuff, that price of carbon in Australia started to shoot up. It started to shoot up everywhere around the world. It's just like shares, right? It's like people flock to where they think their investment's going to be. Can you break that down? Because I think this this idea of storing carbon and that having value could be completely new to some of the listeners. If you were to sort of describe this for the first time to someone, this new sort of model and way of thinking about carbon, how would you do that? This is why I like the indigenous principles because I'm going to go back to that in a minute. Um, Carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere when we burn it from fossil fuels and release it from the soils and agriculture, et cetera, it goes in the atmosphere. That's still a natural resource, like any other resource in the world, like gold, like oil. All we're doing is putting a price on it, putting a value on it. If we put a price on it, a value on it, then it becomes valuable to people and we can work out ways to draw that back down. And that the ways to draw that back down is through those carbon farming methodologies that I was sort of explaining. Um, but basically, carbon is the building block of all life on Earth. Like you and I are made up of it, the trees, the oceans, the soils, and we need it to regenerate everything. So if we have to value that in the same way that the indigenous used to. The indigenous knew that value. And it's just a perspective change. It's just looking at the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere like gold. If we look at it like a gold mine, then we can put a price on it and we can base an entire economy on the regeneration of nature, not degeneration. Do you think the challenge there is that you, the value of it, well, you can see it. Actually, you can see it. If you can demonstrate that you can see it sort of visually what the value is, because gold, you can see it's tangible, you know, and, and, and iron or steel is like a tangible asset. Whereas carbon being, say, stored in the ground, you can't see that, but you can see the knock-on effects of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and blockchains kind of changed that a little bit, I think, with uh, Bitcoin. Um, with, Explain that. Oh, I don't know much about Bitcoin, but it, it's basically nothing, right? Um, we're putting a value on nothing. Uh, so carbon dioxide is not nothing, but we have to look at it differently. We have to see it as a, as a trillion dollar gold mine sitting up in the atmosphere. And we have to value nature enough as well to be able to do that. But the capitalists of the world, and this is why I sort of want to go into capitalism a little bit, is because people just see capitalism as a bad thing. It's like if you go down to the local coffee shop or local bar and you get a two-for-one drink, it's like we're, we're all capitalists in the end because we all want to save money, we all want to make money. And when I was explaining um, how people react, we either react or slow cultural change, um, we're not going to react fast enough to get rid of capitalism because we're in the end we're all capitalists. We all want to um, move forward with our lives. Progress is is the is the force of life in a way, and that's driving some of the required innovation here oh, to come up with solutions. Right? Definitely. I mean, I wouldn't have a job without capitalism. So we're not going to get rid of it in time. You know, look how long it took us to uh, to well, gay marriage, for example. It's like it took us, you know, a couple of decades to say yes to gay marriage. It's like that was a slow cultural change and that was just a yes or no question. It's like climate change is an incredibly complex issue with multifaceted set of solutions. It's like how do we, 
we're not going to change in time to sort of counteract those climate impacts, that, that temperature shift. Um, so we have to use capitalism to our advantage. We have to make this a billion or trillion dollar industry and flip the entire capitalist model, which is based on degeneration of nature, like mining, extracting those products out of the earth and start putting them back in the earth. It's like reverse mining. It seems, I mean, you've mentioned the indigenous people quite a few times here, and it seems like it's it's very important to have their voice heard in this conversation. Yeah. And, and to be a part of this innovation and to be a real central part of these solutions. Is that happening? Do you feel like we've we've been able to realize, say, through the, the recent bushfires, for example, that there is a lot to be learned through opening these conversations and tapping into some of that traditional wisdom? Yeah, Victor Stephenson, I don't know if you've heard of him. He wrote a book called Fire Country. He was based up in Laura um, and working with the elders up there. He's an uh, Indigenous person himself. And he, after the bushfires came out, he wrote this book on fire country. And it was all about the Indigenous knowledge on fire. And he, even though it was in northern Queensland, he applied those sort of principles to the rest of Australia. And now he goes around doing fire workshops. So again, there's a slow shift, but it's too slow. Um, we need to start listening a little bit harder because those principles with a combination of Indigenous principles plus the best of Western science can be the solution, absolutely. I mean, they, they talk about things like um, the land is the teacher and like the way that the Western culture mind works is that we plan for stuff. We, we want to burn in blocks at particular times. And the, the Indigenous were like, no, you go out in the land and you see if it's the right time to burn. You're like you have a look at the moisture in the ground and the trees and the way that the grasses are acting and the wind and you become ecologically literate. You have to the, let the land be the teacher, not plan that model. of, of uh, And it's, it's just very difficult concept for the Western culture mind to get because we don't work that way. We work in systems and processes. And of course, science is very important, but I feel like we need a, a healthy mix of science and this traditional knowledge. Oh, Definitely, yeah. Um, and it's the Native American Indians are probably better at communicating in a Western culture way, in a way that we can understand. The indigenous populations in Australia are just, it was so deep, it was so rich, and there were so many layers to it. And there's not many voices out there now that it's very hard to relay that information back. I think there's a, a disconnect at the moment between that knowledge and then communicating that back in a way that we can understand. So I think that's one of the main challenges we need to get over at the moment. But Victor Stephenson did a very good job at communicating that around fire. Um, the other one that I'd recommend is Bruce Pascoe. He wrote a book called Dark Emu, and that is more about the regenerative mindset that the Aboriginal populations had back in the day. For example, around this area in Sydney, they had large amounts of native rice fields. And you know how in crops these days we sort of genetically modify the seeds or whatever to make them. That's actually like with climate change, that's making them more susceptible to disease and heat stress and the rest of it. So the Aboriginals would pick the best seeds out of the crop and replant them. So it was like a natural succession kind of thing. That's one of the examples of regenerative agriculture that, that they used. 
So that those seeds were actually adapted to the environment. It was a selection advantage. A selection advantage. And they went through 75,000 years of climatic changes in, in Australia. So they learnt how to deal with those slow changes. The only, the only difference now is that the climate changes are happening a hell of a lot faster than what it did back then. So we have to learn a hell of a lot faster, I guess. You, you mentioned Sydney and it's amazing to think. I, I, I've quite often looked at Bondi just from like 100, 120 years ago and to see it without buildings and just sand dunes, how much we've done in such a short period of time. When you look at all of the, the human existence and you look at, at the development just in the last 200 to 300 years is mind-blowing. Yeah, but I think that we should also treasure that. Like I was looking yesterday, I've got a motel room at the moment up overlooking the city and I was watching the sunset go down on Sydney itself. I thought, you know, what we have done is beautiful and we shouldn't knock that, you know, like we have made incredible technological advances. Like we can fly to the moon and Mars now and Elon Musk is doing amazing things, you know, like the the human mind is such a beautiful thing. Um, If we can just apply that to rewilding nature, regenerating, rewilding nature itself, then imagine what the world could look like. So we, we shouldn't knock the technological advances that we've made because um, it is beautiful and we are very incredible creatures. We just need to learn how to be more aligned with nature and not against it. Yeah, I share that same optimism. I think that's what it gives me, optimism. Yeah. Knowing and, and also that this development, I don't think, I don't, I don't believe that the intent was ever to, to develop at the expense of the environment. I think people were doing the best with what they had and, and trying to build their economy and have greater food security. And along the way, we're learning new things and we have new information that can help us pivot and do things even better. Well, we created a reality that we didn't expect. And that's why I sort of want to get a bit real with climate change is that we didn't expect that reality. And we are going down a very dark path, but the solutions at hand are so unbelievably hopeful And we just have to act a lot more quickly than what we have in the past, I guess. And if it's something that we can solve, because humans are great problem solvers, if it is something that we solve, I think for humanity, it's much bigger than just solving planetary health and and climate change because it's going to require a unified effort, less division, bring people together. And so there'll be learnings beyond just the, the storage of carbon and the actual practices, but there will be big learnings in terms of principles. Climate change is the one challenge that all of us face, all, all species, all living species and, and people. So we talk about, there's a lot of movements going around talking about equality and, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, like the, there's heaps of movements talking about equality at the moment. This challenge that we're facing right now, climate change, is going to impact all of us in many different ways. And, and, you know, and even the vegan movement about the animal rights and everything. I mean, we are all facing this. So it's an opportunity to really come together, listen to each other in how we can come up with the solutions for the right path forward. I, I really strongly believe that climate change is the challenge that will unite all species on earth, regardless of race, religion, or culture. Uh, I think, and we have to see it like that because the human mind is sort of, tends to look for what could go wrong. 
I think we need to start looking for what could go right in the world. So let's do that. Let's let's start talking about solutions. And let's talk about this agriculture piece and why in this overall conversation of climate change, of course, there's lots and lots of different solutions. And I think we would agree that this is going to take many different solutions in order to solve it. It's a bit like a big puzzle. And Drawdown has done a nice job at sort of summarizing all of those different solutions which which work in different areas. Why is agriculture such a, an important part of this puzzle? Because it's been a massive part of the problem. We have degraded such a large amount of land using conventional methods and not really knowing what we're doing with a high demand driven for more product, more beef product in particular, which required a huge amount of deforestation and um, that high demand just took took so much out of the land that now we're in deep trouble. Basically, there's like two-thirds of the world desertifying and desertification is like a, a fancy word for droughted areas. And, and the more that we do that, the more carbon goes in the atmosphere, the more that we're degrading areas. Mm-hmm. So if an industry or, or someone is part of the problem, they can also be part of the solution. There are better ways to do this. And my regenerative journey started uh, when I was working in carbon farming for the first time. I was going around cattle stations, assessing vegetation uh, with a motorbike. So I'd just map the whole cattle station. I went through all, you know, Western New South Wales, Western Queensland. So I saw a lot of that country out there. I talked to a lot of different people. I came across a guy named uh, David Ward who his father was one of the mentors and teachers in holistic management. And he started talking about the way that predator-prey relationship, how the animals move, the buffaloes and the elephants and the like, they moved in tight bunches and moved across in this rotational type migratory pattern, which trampled the soil, increased infiltration rates, increased nutrient rates. It gave the country a chance to rest. And it just sort of blew my mind. I was like, why aren't we talking about this more? And there's a company that he was working for called Sustainable Land Management. They were practicing that out there in those drier areas. So they were setting up watering points and then they had a circular type paddock. And so the cattle would be moved each three to seven days. So this is like a a different type of practice to traditional grazing. Yeah, traditional grazing is, is basically like intense grazing in one paddock for a very long time. This is doesn't get a break. No, it doesn't get a break. This is intense grazing for a short period of time so that they trample the ground, um, they fertilize the soil with their manure and everything else, and then they move on. And is, is just to take one little step back, in Australia, the majority of cattle are coming from a traditional grazing system. There's not a whole lot of factory farming here, right? Um, there is now. There's so it's changed. W- there's way too much factory farming. Uh, I think moving- for cows or for for pigs or for both. Oh, I think for everything. Yeah, I, I, and it's just so unhealthy for the animal and both us. We should have never taken them off the land in the end um, because they just need to be managed in a better way on the land itself. But there's a massive problem. And that can work, right? That isn't a legitimate scientific methodology. Regenerative agriculture is a legit. If you can build soil carbon through that process, because when when it rains, right, it decreases the water runoff, increases the water infiltration, and you can build soil carbon that way. So that's the way that you mine it out of the atmosphere. You use that sort of model, 
and you can build soil carbon and you can get paid, the farmers can get paid for that soil carbon. They can also get paid for regeneration of forests. So in that particular Western Queensland area, they cut down mulga for, to use as cattle fodder. And so I would go along and I'd say, well, look at that regrowth there. You can get paid for that carbon, that carbon growth in that tree. When they started off as little trees and they grow into a big forest, you can get paid for that. I can calculate that, that carbon abatement, and you can get paid for that. So you're basically growing money on trees and the, and the farmers can get paid for that and just manage their cattle more sustainably and amongst it. So who's who measures the carbon? Is it is it the farm or a third party or how does that work? So the carbon companies do and then there's a third party and it goes through the clean energy regulator, which is a, a government audited process. And do you get more carbon storage in regeneration with the the forest or through having the, the holistic forest grazing? Forest, 100%. So I think this is this is interesting for me because what's the greatest cause of deforestation in this country? Oh, yeah, well, it's definitely agriculture. Um, it is agriculture across the world at the moment. So what you're saying though is that the farmers are doing a mix of both. Like they, there is a push as well to regenerate and reforest and replant. Through the Paris Climate Agreement. So through those initiatives. And so the best example I can give of that is... You know, when you fly in Qantas and you tick the carbon offset box, Qantas were one of our main clients at the time. And so all that money from that carbon offset was going straight into regeneration projects. They just don't tell that story well enough. You know, that there are good things going on in Australia, um, large regeneration projects of, of forests, you know, getting to full potential and farmers managing their land better. We're just not telling that story and it's not happening fast enough. And what about protecting the existing forest? Because I, I think, and this is just information that I picked up from 2020, agriculture was the number one source of deforestation, you know, again. So it's all well and good, I guess, to be planting trees, but we kind of have to turn the tap off as well, right? Oh, 100%. And there's a methodology called avoided deforestation. So you can calculate what that tree is worth in terms of carbon dioxide or carbon sequestration value of that tree in the full forest, what that carbon value is worth versus what's knocking it down. So you can get paid to not knock them down. That's what I'm saying. It's called avoided deforestation. Is a lot of that, do you know, the source of that deforestation? If it is happening for agriculture, is it demand for meat outside of Australia, like export, or is it increasing meat consumption here locally? It's mainly export, but still internally in our own country, it's just so high demand. And that's what part of the problem, right, is that, and, and I worked for all those companies that quite large resource companies. And I was environmental superintendent at the time, leading a team and I was the compliance manager, basically. So we had 500 environmental conditions that we had to abide by. And I had to manage all the different programs, the water programs, the air programs, you know, the soil programs, the rehabilitation programs, everything. So when you're stuck in that high driven mode where there's just thing after thing and it's all compliance driven, there's no opportunity to think outside the box. So what I'm saying is that that high demand model doesn't work. Like the population is meant to increase by 10 billion by 2050. There's a huge demand on meat at the moment um, and we're stuck on a treadmill where we can't get off. And, and I remember when I left the resource industry quite 
recently and, you know, I'm a 10-year professional now and I'm not saying that I'm an expert in any way or anything like that, but I, I had a few things to say after being in the resource industry for a while. I was like, I want to make some change and I want to, I have observed a few things. So I wanted to write a document and just like a, a vision or a proposal, I guess, is like how do we align ourselves more with nature and think about it more? And I just thought like my manager at the time and everyone at the time was just so stuck on that treadmill that I didn't think that it would add any value. You just can't. Until you step outside that model and you start looking at it from the outside in, you can see how driven and how destructive it really is. When you're stuck in the churn of it, you can't see. It's like you're blind. So I do advocate for a plant-based diet to move to more regenerative because we can't even see past our own two feet at the moment. We, we cannot see two steps in front of us because we can only see the first foot in front of us. So the plant-based diet will reduce the demand on meat so that we can step back and we can work out ways to become more regenerative, move away from that factory farm, that industrial feedlot type model. And that's also the indigenous diet as well. And that's why I keep on going back to these principles. It's like the indigenous diet was primarily plant-based. And then, you know, they'd go away on a hunt occasionally and that meat then was the bonus. And they celebrated that with, you know, the ceremonies and, and, and um, the corroborees and everything. So it was treasured in that way. I'm not saying that we should stop eating meat completely because that's it's probably, uh, it's unrealistic. And, and also, you know, cattle are part of that solution. They can be part of that solution if we use them in the right way. But currently we're not. We're not using them the right way. There's only like 10 to 15% of farmers in Australia that are regenerative farmers. Okay, that's more than I thought, actually. Well, how, how would someone know if you were just buying products in the store, if it's coming from a regenerative farm? And also, I guess, are all of those farms, are they all actually keeping track of the carbon that's being stored? No, and that's one of the most difficult things is that there's only a couple of um, carbon projects that are audited at the moment with that sort of style model. There's no way to tell in the supermarket. So just going and buying meat is not really good enough. So I, when I eat red meat, I will eat it from farms that I know. Like the, go direct. You go direct to them. Um, and I also advocate for like a higher kangaroo diet as well, just for the um, what I've seen out west, is like because we've put in more watering points across Australia, the kangaroo population has just boomed out there. And they have mouths like sheep, so they eat the grass right down to the root. They destroy the plant completely. And then when I was working out there and in that seven-year drought, I was at the peak of that drought in the six or seven years. And um, I just saw thousands of them starving to death. They wouldn't even get up as I rode past them on the motorbike. So, you know, I think that because we've done that to them, we have to manage their population better. So, you know, swap red meat out for kangaroo meat is a good option. Um, higher plant-based diet is just a healthier option in general, like what you say. I don't need to preach to the converted here. Um, and also carbon farming is a real solution. Like I remember when I was implementing a carbon project on this sheep farmer out of Karnamulla, at the peak of that drought, he was saying to me that he'd completely destocked all his country. He had no income for his family. And he was saying to me that carbon farming saved him. He had suicidal sort of thoughts and that then the carbon income came in and it saved his family. So this is a solution 
This is an environmental solution. It's a social solution. It's also an economic one. That's why I'm such a big advocate for it. And even if we all went vegan, the carbon can still pay for that land management. It can still pay for the farmers. So we don't actually need to eat those cattle in the end. I guess that's a question that I was going to ask as playing devil's advocate. I know that some listeners would be thinking, okay, well, I, I understand the the animal on the land is, is adding value. It's treading on the grass. It's poo is working its way. The nutrients are going back into the soil, much like a wild buffalo or these wild animals that you spoke about. And they're probably thinking, well, does that animal need to be removed from the system or could it be a part of the system and live out its natural life? And I'm sure, I believe you actually live with a couple of vegans, am I right? I do. I do. <laughs> so, so this might have been a sort of, you know, spiritual philosophical question that maybe has been tabled. What, what do you think? Look, I, I think that going back to my point about the climate projections, it's like we've done so much damage and the climate project, this is what regenerative agriculture hits the mark on. And this is one of my big problems with it at the moment is that the people aren't really understanding the climate projections is like we can't just farm those cattle and think it's going to be okay we need like those climate projections out west for example like you actually need water without the water cycle you've, you've got nothing you can't build carbon in the soil so we need I, I have been looking into the bradfield scheme i don't know if you know of that it was an engineer in 1956 came up with this engineering scheme to move water through gravity-fed pipes down through the channel country and really open it up. And that's just a large water management plan in the end. It's like I have implemented water management plans at a small scale. It's just looking at a large scale. And the other, so we, we actually have to come up with these solutions. Like we can't just let the land rewild itself because it won't. It's just too hot, too dry. The heat waves are coming too fast. The droughts are coming too fast. The floods are coming too fast. We have to manage this in a rapid way. Using cattle is the only way that we know how to build soil carbon very, very quickly, along with, you know, um, different seeding, uh, et cetera, like diversity. But those principles of regeneration can be used anywhere. And so the, the principles of regeneration are just basic science in the end. Like we learned that in year 10 biology. Uh, the first one is... For those of us that were paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't either, but I learned them later on, I guess. Um, the first one is photosynthesis. So the solar plant cycle. So if we, if we really encourage that, that photosynthesis cycle, then we can regenerate the plant. And so one of the problems with conventional agriculture is they let that beast eat the plant right down to the base root. So it's got no leaf, so it can't actually photosynthesize to start with. So in regen ag, you'll go out in the paddock and you'll look at that to make sure there's enough leaf there to regenerate. So that's the first principle. The second one is the water cycle. You need to increase the water cycle somehow. And that can be increased through the photosynthesis and, and different water management, et cetera. Third one is the nutrient cycling as well. So that's where the cattle come in. You can increase the nutrient cycling through that. The fourth one is diversity. Um, this is why we don't like monoculture and cropping, etc. You need to create a whole range of different crops because they put different nitrogens and different really good things back in the soil. If you have one crop all the time, um, then, it, then it can take too much out of the soil and it's not putting back in. Like in all of nature, there's diversity across across the whole planet and that's the way that the soil regenerates. And the fifth one is the mindset shift. There's like a lot of people talk about this in regenerative agriculture is that that's the biggest one. 
You have to change the paddock between your ears before you can change anything in the paddock itself. And that journey is one of self-discovery. You have to look into nature for the solutions and you have to reduce your own ego and your own prides and your own prejudices and your own biases and really learn from other people. And that includes the vegan community. Like we really have to sit down and understand where their perspectives are coming from. This is why I hate the vegan meat-eater debate is that we, the strongest force in the human body and mind is to stay congruent with our own identity. And our identity is... Uh, we're, we're a product of our own environment in the end. So if you grew up on a cattle station like I did, then you, you don't understand where the vegans are coming from. So I really had to step outside that. And, and now I'm like um, involved with and spoken to a number of different people and I really have an understanding of where they're coming from and why. And I don't think enough people do that. And so when you see a meat eater versus a vegan and these fights that, just sort of break out. Like we can't actually see anyone else's perspective because we're just so convicted. We have a conviction that our way is the right way and your way is wrong. It's a debate versus a conversation. It is. And the language that we use can be quite divisive. I think the language that we use, like it changes the biochemistry in our brain. So if you say to someone, you're a liar, versus you're misguided, like maybe you need to look at it from a different perspective, that automatically we become defensive and reactive. And this is where all the arguments are born. And that's not science-based. We need to look at the actual science. Yeah, and I mean, it sits on both sides of the fence. Uh, Sacred cow comes to mind. They spend a lot of time attacking vegans and vegetarian diets. I'm not sure if that's a, a good thing for the regenerative agriculture movement. Oh, no. And it frustrates the hell out of me. And, and no one wants to listen. Even the regen ag movement, the people in that, um, are not very receptive to that vegan movement. But why shouldn't we be? Like we should be moving away from that conventional model and they can help us do that. Well, regenerative agriculture still grows produce, fruits, vegetables and, and it does, whatnot. yeah. And, and so holistic grazing is kind of one aspect of it, albeit a, a quite a central aspect. My question on holistic grazing, just digging a little bit deeper here, and, and some of this, there may not be answers to some of this. So it could be something that we come back and, and, and table. I see this as a, an open conversation that we can just continue and, and, and keep rolling on. Uh, the, the bit around not tracking the carbon is interesting because... And again, I don't think this is representative truly of the people that are in holistic grazing. Some of them they are, but but not yourself and, and probably people that you're working with here in Australia. But online you see lots of really big, bold claims. And then there's you know a lot of people adopting the carnivore diet or whatever it is, very meat-heavy diets who are saying, well, my meat's you know, reversing climate change. It's net carbon negative. And it may be, it, it could well be, but... The major reports that I've seen suggest that it can be very different farm to farm. And there was the, I think it's the FCRN uh, report, which is the the Food Climate Research Network. I'm not sure if you saw that. It came out of Oxford Uni. Anyway, I can send it across your way. And they were looking at some of Alan Savory's specific claims. And he's a bit of a, a, I guess, pioneer in this space, right? And they were comparing sort of peer-reviewed science, looking at, at different farms that had implemented holistic grazing and non-peer-reviewed. 
And it seemed very variable as to how much carbon was being stored and whatnot. And when Alan Savory commented on it, he said that good managers manage well. And he might be very right. But my question about this is if there is sort of great variability and we're not monitoring how much carbon is being stored, how much can we rely on this in terms of scaling it up and really being sure that that farm is truly capturing carbon and more carbon than their practice is emitting, hopefully. No, you're exactly right. We can't unless it's regulated, like everything else in this country. And the way to do that is through carbon farming. That can be regulated through the government, through the third auditing process and everything that that I do in the end. Um, But without that, it is greenwashing. You know, the grass-fed beef, you don't know if that's regenerative or not. It could be just, you know, a paddock full of grass and they're just doing it sustainably. Like regenerative agriculture, the actual definition of it because I get frustrated at this, like a lot of people come up with their different definitions of what it is. There's only one in the end. There's like regenerative agriculture is restoring ecosystems to full health. It's like bringing it from ground up, bringing something that was conventionally smashed, you know, smashed into the ground or whatever, and regenerating the forests, the soils, the grasses, everything to full health, including people. It's about being a part of nature. So you have to include yourself as part of that whole cycle and that's part of that mindset shift. So if it's not regulated, there's a lot of greenwashing that goes on. And I've been attacked. I cannot win, to be honest. I've been attacked from both sides. Regen ag community saying, oh, you stupid vegan cowboy, you know. Um, and then the, the vegan community. Going, it's a tough spot to sit in. It is. And I sit right in the middle. I sit right in the middle because I see both sides and both sides are the solution. And and we need to get better on both sides. We, ne- we have to like... I guess my comment on that is not even from a vegan mindset. It's more just thinking of, like you said, there's an urgency to tackle climate change. And if we're talking about solutions, we want to want to make sure that there actually are a solution. And there's not just this big buzzword like gluten-free, right? Gluten-free came into the nutrition world and everyone thought that and and rightly so there are certain people that should avoid gluten but it very much took on this sort of health halo effect and it was written on all of these ultra processed foods and and now it's a billion dollar industry and people are eating ultra processed gluten-free foods thinking they're healthy and they're not and so i'm not suggesting that regenerative agriculture is the same as that but i'm suggesting that solutions if we're not governing them could well get out of hand and we see this buzzword being thrown around online Farms are using it, but we don't truly understand how how is that farmer, as you say, and it sounds like from what I've read that this can be a great solution, but each farm might be very different and, and Alan Savory sort of speaks to that and it's going to rely on that farmer knowing his land and sort of it's not a, a one-size-fits-all playbook. No. Is that right? Oh, 100%. That's why I went through the five principles before, um, is that those principles can be applied anywhere in the world, but the management around that will be different farm to farm. And if we're not regulating that, it makes it very hard. But we, I think that whether you're a vegan or whether you're a meat eater, we just need to be more conscious of where our food comes from. So the, the plant-based diet as well can be very conventional. Yeah, give us some tips there. What would you say for, for people in terms of if you're being conscious, no matter what your diet is, what are some tips? It's bloody hard. Um, I, I think the first step is organic. That's a regenerative principle is like moving away from the high inputs, the chemicals and the, and the fertilizers, moving into a system that's more organic, more aligned with nature. Organic's a good one. Um, local food is another one because you reduce those transport costs and you're not moving to, from feedlots, et cetera. 
and then just trying to be a little bit more conscious of where the, the meat comes from if you would choose to eat meat and maybe just be treated as a bonus like once once or twice a week. So in Australia, because some of the listeners of this show do eat meat, if there was someone listening who does eat meat and wanted to buy from a regenerative farm, and this is by no means a plug, I just want, actually want to make sure that people are, if that's their choice and they want to eat meat, where would, where would they go? Yeah, uh, there's the Conscious Farmer in New South Wales. Um, if you look them up online, Derek and Kiralee Blumfield, they're, they're holistic management managers and they um, produce a lot of products. There's Charlie Arnott in Byron, well, he's in... Bora. I've seen some of Charlie's work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's, he's pretty good as well and he knows a few regenerative farmers um, along the way. But the, the problem is that there's no actual products, right? So... There is with the conscious farmer. When you say there's no products, he's not he's not selling products to the public. I think he does. I think Charlie and um, Charlie Arnott does as well as the conscious farmer, Derek and Kira Lee. But there's not at scale, right? Okay, so I'm assuming from an affordability point of view, these products are more expensive than than buying a, a sort of beef from a factory farm. Not necessarily. They're they're pretty reasonably priced, um, but it's just I guess it's harder. It's and it. It's a lot more difficult in terms of transport and stuff, depending on where you are in Australia. Like it's a lot easier to go to Coles or Woolworths, right, and just get meat off the shelf. Whereas you have to sort of go directly to them and liaise with them how you transport the meat or whatever. But what you're saying is if you go into Coles and Woolies, some of that, it could well be factory farmed beef here in Australia. You can't tell. You can't tell. You, yeah. If Grass-fed is probably the best way to go. Chicken diet because um, it's low-carbon meat, uh, kangaroo meat, you're helping the uh, agricultural industry as well as the environment out there. Um, I think it's just about being a little bit more conscious about what we eat and why, rather than getting into the details too much and just trying to change. The, the biggest thing that I advocate for is just moving away from that conventional model. Like we have to move away from that high industry driven um, demand. So just a small reduction in meat um, move to, you know, free-range organic chicken maybe and kangaroo meat and organic. A anything organic is, is a good thing because it's one of the principles of Regen Ag is that we're just trying to move away from that high consumerism-driven model of more chemicals, more fertilizers, more throwing more stuff out of the land so that we can take more out of it. It's like we need to align ourselves with nature a lot more than what we are. And the way to do that is to step off that treadmill. And so if you have local farmers markets, that would be a good way of, of being able to, I guess, speak with potentially someone from the farm and ask questions. What sort of questions would you ask if you wanted to better understand the, the practices that they use? Oh, good question. I, I would just get an understanding of what they do and why. Um, you can start to pick people pretty quickly when they start talking about this stuff. So just um, ask them what type of model they use, how do they farm their cattle or um, how do they farm their crops. And you've got to look for diversity. You've got to look for not monoculture. You've got to look for cover crops. You've got to look for no tilling. Um, so you probably have to know your stuff as well to be able to ask those questions and know what they're answering to come back. So it's about... Um, Getting a bit more knowledge in that area, I'm sure your listeners from listening to your podcast are, pr are pretty knowledgeable, um, so they can probably ask better questions. But it, it's about understanding how that food is grown 
and why. The, the, the why is really important as well. The, the other interesting thing here that I'm not sure if you've thought about is the intensive animal agriculture, I guess, is, is pretty good at, at producing a lot of meat in a short space of time, right? That would be hard to argue against kind of where it's come from to meet that demand you were talking about before that is exploding and the population's exploding and there is this just need for protein and and solving the the, the this supply of protein is just crucial to everything we're talking about here the the downshift to a sort of more regenerative framework for producing beef what does that do to the supply the supply would drop, hopefully. I, I really feel like with the population growth and everything that we actually need to drop a bit of supply and the carbon farming industry can replace that model. So you can still employ the, the farmers on the land. They can still manage the land because the land still, like I was saying before, because of the climate projections still need to be managed. Now in terms of alternative proteins, I really believe in seaweed. It grows 30 to 60 times faster than any land-based plant. And in terms of carbon sequestration potential, it's huge. And it, it uh, has been proven scientifically to reverse ocean acidification, to um, reduce ocean temperature overall. Um, and we've learned now through Brian von Herzen, the Climate Foundation, I don't know if you've heard of him, but he has worked out a model for the ocean itself, because the the top layer of the open ocean is basically a marine desert. There's no nutrient value. It's very warm temperature. Um, and with global warming, 90% of the extra heat is, is absorbed in the ocean. So the oceans are becoming extremely acidic because of the more carbon dioxide that's um, been sequestered. I think this is a really important thing for people to understand. Oh, it, it, incredible. Like... W the ocean controls the whole climate system. It's, it's a huge part of the problem. And so we need to look to the ocean for solutions as well. And we can do that through open, this open ocean uh, seaweed model that Brian von Herzen has come up with, where he puts uh, pipes down 300 metres below the ocean surface and they work off tidal wave energy. So when a wave comes on the top, um, there's a valve at the bottom which opens up. It draws that nutrient-rich cool water to the surface and it creates these enormous phytoplankton blooms. And you can create like a plastic sort of a rope platform to grow the seaweed on, on ropes. And it grows so fast. The seaweed potentials to grow that is just enormous. And you can drop that seaweed to the bottom of the ocean and it can be stored there for thousands of years. So it's closing off that carbon loop because it's one of the problems with Regen Agrite is if you don't manage it properly, if there's another farmer that comes on 20 years later, doesn't manage that properly or the climate projections wipe out, you know, all the all the good work that you've done, it emits back in the atmosphere. As long as the uh, the big o sea ocean trawlers don't get down there and scrape it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. But it's... Uh, we need to work out ways to close off that carbon loop, basically. And seaweed is one of the ways that we can do that. And CSIRO, the leading scientific agency in Australia, has now developed a seaweed cattle feed supplement that can reduce methane emissions up to 99%, which can basically wipe out. So you can right away feed seaweed to cattle in feedlots and wipe out their entire methane emissions. Yeah, I've got a couple of questions for you on that. I think... I, I, I read that and I was like, okay. this is an yep. amazing solution. And I still think it is a valuable solution. And these questions I have, this could be for round two. So if they're not information you've looked at yet, 
then that's cool. We can discuss it later. Because I read that and I saw this huge drop in methane during the feedlot stage, which of course is is still incredibly important. But from my understanding, a lot of the the grazing cattle here in Australia, most or around 80% of the methane they emit in their lifetime is when they're on grass. And so the 99% reduction in methane would be of 20% of their total emissions. I'm not sure if that's something that you've come across, but it's, it's an interesting thing because I saw a lot of headlines saying 90, 99% reduction in methane, but I'm wondering if that's looking at the complete sort of life cycle of that animal. It's pretty much been done in a lab, basically, in a very controlled environment. So they need to do a lot more work in the live situation. And they definitely haven't done it on grass-fed, for example. They've only done it in that very controlled feedlot-type scenario. And also there's another problem with it is that they actually have to be fed this feed every day for it to reduce every day. So would that work on a grass-fed sort of scenario or not really? Not really. So it can only work in feedlots at the moment until we find a better solution. So it could be good for, particularly for a country like America in in the sort of interim where a lot of their cows are in feedlots. That's right. We need to think about transition. A healthy, just transition like we talk about with renewable energy and fossil fuel is like everything needs to be transitioned. So this is a solution that can be implemented straight away to just eliminate methane emissions, basically. Like, I know there's details and amongst that, but basically we just need to throw these solutions out there and start working on them and see we can be part of that, uh, as well as, so it'll give us a chance to move into those more regenerative models. You can sequester carbon, you can do carbon projects on that seaweed farm at the same time and sequester that carbon and provide protein for the rest of the world as well. Yeah, I think uh, I'm with you on that. We need lots of solutions and there might be transition solutions. It's it's a, a little reminder, I think, of how sometimes headlines can run away with something and make it look like the one single silver bullet, even though it still is obviously a valuable solution. It's just good for us to kind of understand some details that get lost sometimes online, particularly on social media. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're all marketers, right? We all try to market that one. And everyone wants to be that one solution, that one silver bullet. But that is the most important thing that we have to remember. There is no one silver bullet to that. It is a complex problem with a multifaceted set of solutions. And I think that's really important. And that's quite empowering in a way too, because you don't have to be an environmental scientist or a nutritional scientist to save the world. You, you can be a mechanic, you know, you can be a school teacher and you can still implement your solution in your career with your passion. We can all be part of this in one way or other. So there is no silver bullet. There are many that need to be fired all at once. And that's why I think we all need to come together, 7 billion of us acting at once with a number of different solutions in our own way um, otherwise, we won't solve it because regen ag's not going to solve it alone. Plant-based diet's not going to solve it alone. Uh, neither is seaweed. Neither is renewable energy. All of them acting together definitely will uh, create the world that we want to see. I agree, and I think I think that's why I like the the Project Drawdown book so much because it provides the top 100 solutions. It's a really good summary. And as you say, you can pick and choose what's most important to you and and something that you can work on and how you can be part of the solution. Yeah, yeah. I I actually love their work. Um, And and it's important to remember too in in their work is that the plant-based diet is like number three 
now um, and Regen Ag's number 11. So they're both important, but right now plant-based is the better way to go and being more conscious of, about that plant-based diet as well. Like where does that food come from? The algae, there's a company, I've seen one company I think that's been getting a few, a, a bit of media recently. There's an Australian company and I know that I had Darren Olean on the show and he was over here with Zac Efron filming the new Netflix series that has been done in Australia. And I know that they, I haven't seen the episode, but I know uh, this is some inside info. I'm not sure whether I should have shared this or not, but I, I know that they spent an episode on, on the algae. So that will be interesting to watch. I am so frustrated that I didn't get to meet that guy. He, uh, he's been interviewing the people that I know in Regen Ag. He interviewed uh, Mick the other day, who I got for my last um, film, A Dry Hope. Is this Darren or, or Zach? Zach, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I talk to Mick quite often. So I had words with him after. I was like, why didn't you ring me up, mate? I couldn't. I love the guy. I think he's great. He can sing, he can dance, he can act, and now he's into environmental stuff. And talk about a guy who he, through that documentary, we were talking about different voices being needed to talk about climate change and reach different people. And he's another perfect example. That show on Netflix has become a massive hit. And just because of him and the fact that he reaches the, these, these youths, it's it's opened up what is a dry topic to all of these you know very very young people who otherwise would not have tuned in to a sort of drier climate change documentary or may not have and it's solutions focused right and that's what I was talking about we always look for what could go wrong but he's shifting the narrative is like what could go right and and how could we do that better so yeah i i, I have a, a slight man crush on on the guy to be honest <laughs> The other thing I'm interested with the the algae is, and I've had a few people message me about this because I think I might have shared something about algae and, and it being a possible solution and, and looking like something that could well help reduce our emissions. And I was sent a few things about bromoform. I'm not sure if you've heard about that. We can chat about it next time. It's, a, it's the molecule in algae apparently that is what reduces the methane. And there's some question as to how healthy that is for the animal and also for the ozone layer. But again, it seems it's not fully understood. No, it's very like, early. They need a lot more science in it. Like I've read the peer reviewed articles that they've got so far, and it's limiting. They're sort of claiming that there's 20% weight gain and there's no. Um, no influence on their uh, chemical biochemistry and their, their meats or anything, um, but it's not demonstrated on grass. Like I said, they they need a lot more experiment. It goes through the peer reviewed process. Watch this space. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so we've covered off on algae there. I mentioned before around legislation changes. If you were to kind of consider going back to uh, Paris Agreement, what our commitments are, where agriculture is today, or just carbon farming in general, is the government taking the steps they need to take from a legislation point of view? And if you were in government or were speaking with someone in government, what would you like to see be, be sort of introduced into this country to help us meet our obligations there? Yeah, the, the strongest one... Uh, people tend to shy away from particular governments is a carbon price. We actually need to put a solid price on on carbon so that we can simultaneously reduce emissions as well as offset them, sequester them. 
Um, that is the single biggest thing that any government can do. Once you put a price on carbon, it's highly regulated, like anything else, like oil, like gold. You know, we, we all have a have price to pay. We've been emitting into the atmosphere, treating the atmosphere like a, a garbage can, you know, for for years now, for a couple of centuries. It's like now we need to start paying for it. We need to start contributing back. But we can create an entire economy around that. Um, there's so much opportunity to be had if we put a price on carbon. And the, the industry is going ahead anyway, like I said, because of the hype around it. The carbon price is going up now because of the social shifts, because of all the climate strikes and everything that have been happening. You know, big companies are sort of going, okay, well, we need to offset and here's some money into that emissions reduction fund. And that's driving that price up. But it's still a fund. It's still, and we don't regulate any other industry with a fund. So it's kind of voluntary. Um, we need to stop doing this out of the good of our heart and start actually incorporating it into our everyday lifestyle and start, start um, paying for our emissions and creating an economy around that. And you can make money out of that. You can make money out of carbon farming, not just it's like the carbon price is seen as a carbon tax. It's like we have to pay more for this. It's like, no, you can actually make profit off this if you're smart about it and invest in it as well. Yeah, I think that's what I like about what you're doing and 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 often it can be we can kind of forget about the farmers and their income and the fact that they've inherited this this farm and and may even have debt and it bills to pay just like everyone else and that in this big transition and, and changing of the way we're doing things, we want to make sure that they're looked after be it through carbon storage or better farming practices? Well, we need them, right? We, we need them to help manage the land. Uh, you know, even the Aboriginals manage their land within their ecological niche. You, you know, like people make claims that, that they came up with holistic management. The Aboriginals were the first one to come up with holistic management. They applied the same economic, environmental and social principles across the whole of Australia and they knew their ecological niche. And one of the beautiful things was was that with th they had their fights and tiffs for territory or whatever. Um, but the beautiful thing was was that as times got harder, as they went through those climatic changes, and, you know, they went through a ten thousand year drought. They came together. The clans didn't separate. They came closer together because they needed the watering point that the neighbours had, or they needed that knowledge of where that plant was or where that wallaby was hiding or whatever. So they would come together, their, their clans across Australia would come closer together in times of hardship, not further apart. And I think we need to look to the history of Australia and repeat that in a way. We need to work out a way to come together to listen to each other's perspectives and ideas because we need each other to get through this these next couple of decades. You have a nice quote on your website that says, humanity is the solution. The people will drive the innovation and creativity that is needed to regenerate our forests, oceans and soils to ultimately reverse climate change. Yeah, I, I think Paul Hawkins says it the best in his book, actually, is like we have creativity and innovation that lies within all people and we just need to learn to tap into that. I, I had a horse growing up called Snip. And, you know, when we went cattle mustering, I had to spend two or three weeks on this horse and no one else in the family liked him because he was a little bit sour and he used to buck and carry on and chuck me off occasionally. So I had to spend, well, I couldn't, dad wouldn't buy me another horse. He was like, no, you're stuck with that. That's it. 
I spent two weeks of straight, two to three weeks straight every day on this horse. And I worked out that he was just displaying surface behavior. When you got to his depths and when he went charging through the bush after cattle, he was 100% focused on those cattle and he was a beautiful mover through the trees. I felt so safe on him at the time. And so I found the best in that horse and I learned to bring it out in him. So we have to see past our surface behaviors. We have to see the good in one another and learn to bring that out in each other to get the solution or the outcomes that we need. Because if we, if we don't do that, then, you know, it could be a very dire situation. We need each other to survive. We need all animal species to survive. And climate change is the opportunity. It's a challenge and it's a problem, but it's one with the solutions that we have at hand right now that we can implement with, with each other. We just have to learn to tap into that creativity. Speaking of solutions, and, and I'm... I'm interested in, in hearing from you on this and your perspective and what the, the regenerative agriculture sort of industry as a collective, what their perspective is on cellular agriculture. I'm sure you've, you've come across it, this sort of innovative up-and-coming conversation around the production of beef, synthetic beef it's often called, or clean meat using stem cells. And it's obviously in its absolute infancy and there are various companies out there like Memphis Meats uh, in, in America. And uh, I think there's a company now in Singapore that started selling products. Does the regenerative agriculture industry just see that as another solution that's required along with them to feed 11 billion people or are they threatened by that in any way? Or can you can you give me your perspective on that? Uh, I, I, to be honest, I haven't looked too much into it, but um, I have heard a bit on the reactions and threat. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just, I really don't know. I think that it could be part of the solution. I just, I can't really comment on it. I don't know enough about it. But anything that's sort of helping move away from that high demand is probably not a bad thing as long as it's healthy. And you know more about the nutrition side than what I do, so you can help I me. I think there's still there's still a lot of water to go under the bridge there. It's very, it's very early mm. to fully evaluate the the healthfulness and even the life cycle analysis of of that because it still requires food production facilities and you still need to feed inputs into it. So, you know, preliminary stuff, it looks like it could be a valuable solution, but I think there's probably a little bit more like many of these solutions for us to understand. I think we just have to be more open to it, right? Um, the, the frustrating thing for me is that people aren't open enough. Uh, I've just been to Beef Week in Rockhampton and what they are talking a lot about the Regen Ag movement there and, and being more sustainable and carbon and the rest of it. It's just very slow, but there's also a lot of vegan slander and we we got to stop seeing people as a threat. They're not a threat. They're part of that overall solution. And we need to work together in that sense a lot more. The culture in the beef industry is moving slowly away from conventional. They are listening to social pressures. There's a bit more regenerative agriculture sort of conversation, carbon farming. How do we do this more sustainably? Just not not fast enough just yet. Beautifully said. Now, before we kind of bring this one to a close. And, and as I said, I do want to ha have you come back on the show. I think this is well and truly now an open conversation and we can keep exploring solutions as they come up and things change in Australia that are noteworthy. 
what's next for you? What would you like to to sink your teeth into from here? I would love to start a podcast. I'm, I'm, well, I can help you do that. Yeah, thank you. I've been um, looking at doing that and using the interviews for my upcoming documentary, A Blue Hope, which is on seaweed and ocean restoration, which I'm starting filming in the next couple of weeks. I am interviewing some people that are quite skeptical on it as well, so I'm going to get a healthy dialogue there. And then I'm writing a book and I'm thinking that the title of the book's going to be Carbon Billionaire because I don't want to just preach to the converted. I want to show people how we can turn this into an industry and talk about those solutions, talk about the mindset shift and the indigenous philosophies and everything that we need right now to turn this industry and flip the economic model, economic, social and environmental model that we currently have on its head to regenerate the, the entire world and reverse climate change. So between a book, a podcast, a documentary. You're going to be busy. Yeah, and I've just started this job as general manager in this carbon company and we're basically an investment company that um, buys land um, and regenerates it and sells it on um, using the carbon projects. So So is that Corey or is that the environmental cowboy? No, that's... um, So the podcast and everything, all the social stuff is like... Is going to be more serious. I'm still going to do some funny videos occasionally. I'm trying to move away from that because I think people have seen enough of my ass. I think on. you need to throw it in there. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, you kind of are the naked cowboy too now that I think about it. Yeah, look, I need to move away from that. I was thinking about going to a political career, and everyone's like, "No, there's too many naked shots for you, mate. No chance." <laughs> oh, mate, it's been a, a delight to have you on. As I said at the start, for me, this was about learning from you seeing a different perspective on things and and I think that you bring a really valuable voice to this conversation so thanks for joining me thanks for sharing your story and and all of your insight and uh, let's make sure we do this again. No, thank you, Simon. I really appreciate it, man. I appreciate everything that you're doing as well. I've learned a lot off you, so vice versa. Thanks, Corey. Thanks, Simon. There we go, friends. What did you think? Corey's a really nice, down-to-earth guy, isn't he? I think overall, from my view, we tend to agree on almost everything. There really is no silver bullet when it comes to climate change. Plant-rich diets are critical. Solutions like algae to reduce methane seem promising on face value and interesting, but there is more still to be understood. We do need as many solutions as we can, but we need to make sure we aren't overhyping solutions as that can do more damage than good. If we are going to make claims about carbon farming and holistic grazing, then really, given the science suggests it's a somewhat difficult practice to implement or replicate, we do need proper governance, not just claims without verification. We would also need this to somehow be shown on packaging so consumers know if their products are truly coming from regenerative farms. I think the proper regenerative farms would agree with this too. Otherwise, anyone can make claims without verification. As Corey said, right now, Australian grocery stores are not selling regenerative food. Grass-fed beef from traditional systems where overgrazing usually occurs are not regenerative. They are, in most cases, degrading the environment, largely through methane emissions and deforestation. And that's important to understand because we are often led to believe that grass-fed beef that is in our major grocery stores is good for the climate. It's not. After we finished the conversation, we spoke a little more about current carbon incentives. From where I sit, 
and I would like to dig a little deeper into this with Corey in the future, I think Australia needs to incentivize more for reforesting, planting trees, so we eventually reach a point where rewilding and holding carbon in the ground is more commercially attractive than grazing cattle and selling the beef. Until then, the farmers are in a bit of a bind because for many, the reality is they have to slaughter the cattle to make ends meet. Certainly some food for thought there. If you have any questions or comments related to this episode, both Corey and I would love to hear from you. It's always great to keep the conversation going. You can find Corey on Instagram at environmental underscore cowboy and me at plant underscore proof. I'll be sure to gather feedback and questions and use them to guide the conversation when Corey and I catch up for a second episode. Finally, please remember to follow, subscribe, leave a review for the show. All that stuff helps. Thanks for hanging out again. I look forward to catching you in the next episode. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.